Do you know which industry employs the most people in 48 out of the 50 states? Healthcare. Global trends show us reaching 10 million people by 2050, a majority of which will be living in cities. While medicine has helped eradicate many diseases, it looks like the most impressive healthcare trends lay ahead of us. As do the challenges. On today's episode, we will be talking to the esteemed and accomplished Dr. Alex Kahana. Dr. Kahana has been a vocal proponent for systemic solutions to improve healthcare at all stages, from the methadone clinics in the rural Northwest to the halls of Congress. Dr. Kahana is a healthcare ecosystem designer and digiceutical integrator who is passionate about pain, addiction, and behavioral health, systems engineering, blockchain, and phenomenology. He has won many awards and received international accolades for his work. He's a decorated combat officer in the Israeli Defense Forces and served as a subject matter expert for the Department of Defense, the Veterans Administration, the State of Washington, and beyond. He is active in state and federal policies which have already reduced opioid-related deaths in the state of Washington. Dr. Kahana has appeared on CNN Sanjay Gupta with President Clinton, NBC Nightly News with Bob Bazel, PBS, NPR, TEDx, and the New York Times, and it is my distinct honor to welcome him to the program today. Dr. Kahana, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. So uh, I heard of you about two days ago. I've been to multiple of your workshops, your talks, and it's been inspiring. It's been informative, so I want to share your perspective with my listeners. So before we jump into it, can you tell us a little bit about who you are and what you're up to? Well, th first of all, thank you for this opportunity. I'm always glad to, to share with people my journey. Uh, on Medium, I think I write uh, in 160 characters. I call myself, you know, I've lived four lives in one, which means not only that I'm old, but that I've seen the dirty little <laughs> secrets of each life. Um, I uh, have uh, had a military background, and I say that because it's important. It means that I am mission-driven, data-driven, I am not risk-aversive, I need how to work on a needs-to-know basis, but most importantly, I truly believe that none of us is as good as all of us. And this whole idea of community and community engagement and building a team, that is, that is fundamental in my DNA. Spent most of my life uh, as a uh, professor in pain medicine, had a full academic career. I built uh, four and a half departments around the world. Last one was uh, chief of the division of pain medicine at the University of Washington in Seattle. Uh, it is safe to say that I'm familiar with the healthcare system, not only in the US, but around the world, uh, both as a patient, as a provider, but also as a boss and a leader mm -hmm. of a academic department. I understand the different stakeholders and the different vantage points. Uh, the third life kind of brought me to the opioid crisis. I'm sure you're aware of yeah. that. Uh, especially in the United States, we're suffering every seven minutes someone dies from an uh, uh, opioid overdose. I, I, I just do not understand why we're not working more gingerly on trying to figure that one out. And it keeps me, literally keeps me awake at night. I have been involved with legislation, with regulatory issues. I would like to say that I'm a, not only a subject matter expert for the Department of Defense and the Veterans Administration, but also participated in large uh, legislative efforts and guidelines, including the CDC guideline. So I've done the thousands of hours on committees and commissions. It. and. 
my uh, next life, uh, uh, my current uh, chapter is in New York City. Moved to New York City. This is my fifth year there. And um, and where were you before? In Seattle, Washington. Okay, and before that in Switzerland. And before that in Japan. And before that in Israel. So I've been around. But, but uh, uh, in New York City... Uh, you really realize that you're dependent or only as good as your entourage and naturally uh, I continued my legacy work with the DOD and the VA and even in the, with the NFL on their pain commission uh, uh, but mostly started to uh, um, advise uh, investment and financial firms. Uh, in the beginning it was things that is usual to think of that doctors do that in genomics and uh, 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 immersive technologies like virtual reality, augmented reality. But uh, one of the investment firms that I uh, worked as a theme developer, uh, Arc Investment, um, really opened my eyes to this disruptive technology. And Chris Bernitsky, by the way, at the time was an analyst. And I was, you know, this is like four years ago, and I was like listening about this blockchain thing, and what is this crypto thing? And I was saying to myself, Oh, this is this is really big stuff, and so like everyone, I putzed around with coins and all that, but started to dig knee deep into the blockchain and started to say, "Wow, this is not just the technology; it will fundamentally change how we behave." And maybe this is what the doctor ordered, and so um, got into crypto. And uh, at the end of last year, uh, met Lou Kerner, who's the uh, uh, co-founder of Crypto Oracle, which is a VC uh, uh, crypto uh, fund. And uh, he asked me to join and be head of the healthcare or crypto health advisory. And I find myself in this extraordinary niche, uh, almost by myself, I would say, yeah. where I'm, if you wish, healthifying the crypto space and blockchainizing the health space. You know, both crypto doesn't know about health, health doesn't know about blockchain. And so I feel privileged to be part of uh, influencing the discourse. And I thank you again for this invitation to share my thoughts. Absolutely. So, I mean, given your, your global perspective and depth of experience and knowledge in the space, um, I, I'm curious, there's a lot of innovation taking cr place across healthcare, but what is the fundamental problem that you think needs to be addressed? That's an excellent question, and I think uh, it's an important one because, you know, a lot of times we do things just because we can, yeah. and it doesn't necessarily change what is happening. So I think that... Uh, um, most technologies, uh, most digital innovations, or what's called digiceuticals, uh, look at uh, the problem in healthcare as an optimization problem. In other words, we're not efficient enough, so how can we introduce efficiencies? How can we digitize things? Uh, oh, we don't have access to this. How can we do telehealth or virtual visits and increase access? Oh, you know, I can't meditate in New York, so how about I slap, you know, a virtual reality, you know, uh, um, on me, and I'll have, you know, Oculus on me, and I'll be fine. So these kind of, you know, incremental changes that don't, don't fundamentally change the fact that this is now the third year in, the, in a row in the United States where life expectancy is decreasing. In other words, we're dying younger and cost continues to raise. So this is, a, is not a sustainable uh, situation. It's not a sustainable business model where we pay more and more to get less and less. That's the definition of lack of value. Yeah. And so when you think long and hard, why is it? You start to understand that the, fu that the fundamental problem in healthcare is that there are many stakeholders and their incentives or their vantage points are not aligned. It's an unbalanced ecosystem where one gain for another, for one, is a loss for another. Right. And that doesn't work. 
And the problem that I see is that those who are trying to fix it, and of course, they're very smart people that came from previous administrations, some in this administration that, you know, are trying to create this value-based care. Why don't we move from fee-for-service and give things that have good outcome? Theoretically, it sounds okay. However, it uh, doesn't fundamentally change the relationship between the stakeholders. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, uh, um, when, when that happens, you have predatory practices that uh, are sh overshadow uh, the system. And I, I think that I like to think of this as not a Hollywood story of good guys, bad guys, but more like a Greek tragedy. Either we all win or we all lose. And so if we start to redesign the incentives between the stakeholders, start to understand what is the vantage point of the patient, of the doctor, of the hospital, of the industry, of the government, of the payer, and start to look at it, we will understand that each one can behave well or poorly, but that we all have to find that common denominator and, and, and work together on it. And can you give me an example of what a better aligned incentive would be for a few of the stakeholders? Sure. So, so, so for example, let, let, let's think for um, um, what bothers each and every one. And so uh, for patients, obviously, is they're not healthier. They're not getting healthier or right. it's more and more hard to maintain health. Okay, for doctors, they're getting burned out because of the you know administration patient and all load. the you know this and the patient load and and patients are getting sicker and sicker and older and older. And like every day, ten thousand baby boomers leave the working cycle and retire every day. Ten thousand. This will continue for the next nineteen years. So this is huge. This is a huge illness burden. Okay, insurance companies are saying, oh my God, you know, the costs are going up. My only model is to ramp up premium prices to the point where uh, uh, medical, medical services is the number one reason for personal bankruptcy. And the industry is saying, well, you know, soon everything is going to be so cost prohibitive that we won't be able to sell our million dollar pills or our half a million dollar devices. So nobody sees this as something good. Right. And everybody's trying to figure out how to solve it, but they're trying to solve it from an optimization problem. If that means if I can only fix this better, if I can only do this, the same thing better. Right. But they're not thinking about, let's do it differently. And that's where blockchain brings it in. You do things differently. Mm. So um, you've had the opportunity to see healthcare in all these different global settings. I'm really curious. In the States, we're always uh, complaining about our model, and we look externally and we glorify the models of uh, Sweden, of um, the UK. But from your perspective, what are the similarities of all the healthcare models? Well, uh, first of all, let me start by saying that there's no good health model and no bad healthcare model. Um, uh, healthcare is a social construct that is culturally sensitive. So each country has its model because that is what their culture allows. It is not a mistake. So I think that it is um, um, wrong to think that you can impose some imaginary uh, healthcare system just because it works there mm -hmm. and do it here. You have to be culturally sensitive. So the, 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 the main, I would say, um, cultural aspect is do I think that healthcare is a utility or do I think it's a commodity? Do I think that everybody deserves it, like water 
and like electricity. And so I don't putz around or fiddle with the price too much because that is not okay. It's a utility. Mm -hmm. Or do I think it's a commodity, which means if you can afford it, you get it. And if you can't afford it, you don't get it. Now, there are some countries that think that healthcare is the absolute right of every citizen, and by the way, non-citizen that resides in the uh, boundaries of that country. Mm -hmm. And so they say, this is non-negotiable. Even if you are a refugee that found yourself, you have no papers whatsoever, we, just like we give you security and the assurance that you won't find yourself in the middle of a war, we also give you the security that if something happens to you, we will give you the medical care necessary. There are some countries that think like that. Yeah. There are other countries that say, no, that's not what we do. We give uh, health care only to law-abiding citizens that can afford certain things. And if you can't afford it, then you're not going to get it. Yeah. Now, there's no right or wrong. It's like this is the cultural construct of that country. And I think that when people start to realize that and try to answer that question, then they will get clarity to what really their approach is to healthcare. Because what happens is we take the story from the middle of the book, not from chapter one. We start talking, okay, you know, uh, after the war, uh, uh, healthcare was given as a benefit by employers, and so we have an employer-based insurance and blah, 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 and we start talking about that. Right. Or that in England in 1960, it was all about universal healthcare, and NHS started coming, so, you know, that's why it is. But that is historical. That's a legacy system. You have to understand what were the social drivers and the cultural drivers beforehand that said, yeah, this is the way we want to go. And culture does evolve and does change, and maybe there's time to do things differently. Yeah. It's fascinating to hear you say that there's not a, a great model of healthcare that exists. I'm wondering if there's um, examples of more sustainable systems that you believe in. Well, I'm, I'm glad you, you used the word sustainability because I think that's the key word. I think that when we fall into moralistic kind of this is good and bad, yeah. we kind of go into a, 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 a circle uh, that, that, that really is not helpful for any constructive dialogue. So really the question is what can continue and what cannot. And when I look at sustainable systems, then it, it, it's really systems, and I'm not going to name countries here because then there'll be other countries that are a little bit upset that I didn't mention them, but I would say that those are systems that take into account the interrelationship between the different stakeholders. In other words, they build an economic system where the welfare and well-being of each stakeholder is important. And that's not something self-evident. For example, should uh, I care about the government to be well? I don't care about them. They're supposed to give me stuff. Right. No. But if you think about it, that that is a non-sustainable economy because if you do not participate by active citizenry and you don't vote and you don't make sure that you are there when there are discussions of positive social uh, legislation, how can you expect that those type of decisions are going to be uh, given? So that's why I like to think of value not as quality divided by cost, which is the, I would say, traditional economic definition of value, but that value is what you get divided by what you give. So if you're someone saying, listen, I deserve to get everything, but I'm willing to give nothing, 
that's not sustainable. Right. And the opposite is I'm going to give everything, but I'm not going to get nothing. That's also not sustainable. Right. So you just have to kind of balance. So if there are healthcare systems which exist that say, for example, first of all, everybody has to be insured. That's, that's non-negotiable. Okay, but then they create an actuarial pool and say, fine, you know what, we do not want a single payer. However, we are looking at this as a utility. This is not a commodity where you can just ramp up the prices and all that. That there is a legislative sandbox. It can only make, for example, one or two percent increments per year, which means that you have to organize yourselves and yeah. make sure that the bulk of the money that you get, you make sure that the beneficiaries benefit from it. And that the difference between a private and public insurance is not the quality of the medical service, but maybe the conditions, you know, instead of uh, getting sugar, you'll get sugar and cream in your coffee. But mm -hmm. the fundamental thing is that if a car hits you, you will get same access in the emergency right. room and not be denied uh, because of the type of insurance. And this is what the situation is not sustainable. Healthcare is like walking into a supermarket, okay, grabbing things that you think you know, there's no price on it. You can't even tell how much it costs. You come to the cashier, and the cashier starts typing the prices. The prices are different if you go in or if I go in. Right. The prices are different if I go in when I'm 20 years old or when I'm 30 years old. And then I get a bill. I don't understand the bill. I don't understand how they're charging me. And I don't understand why they're charging me this. Yeah. You would you it would be impossible to to plan you know a home budget budget. So I think that although we talk a lot about pricing and cost transparency and things like that, it's really more about creating a relationship where you realize that if you are if your business is doing better, but someone else in the ecosystem is doing worse. If you're a drug company that you're doing better, but because of that, a drug company is doing worse, it's not good. It's not good. Mm -hmm. an, adversarial, an adversarial model is not a sustainable model. And we've seen that in history and we've seen yeah. that in nature. So the best thing that uh, a, a, a boutique coffee shop wants is that Starbucks will open because then everybody wants to uh, drink coffee. That's the network effect. That's the decentralization. Okay. And so for uh, social innovators operating in the health space, what do you think are some of the global trends that they need to be aware of as they're designing mm. the, the deeper level solutions? Well, um, I, first of all, you know, I always say there's the good, the bad, and the ugly in crypto health solutions before what are the things you need to do. There's a good thing, there's a bad thing, and there's an ugly thing that you need to be. The good thing is that you want to help. Everybody who goes into developing, you know, a, a crypto solution or to social entrepreneurship, they are coming because they're not falling asleep because of a problem. They're saying there's this thing that happened to me, I broke my leg, I got terrible service, I got to fix it. Right. Or something happened to my mom, she died this, it was unnecessary, how to do this. So there's always a, a impetus, a personal story that brings people into this. And that's good, that's good, and we should uh, you know, commit to that, and, and that's, that's a positive driver into the creative world of crypto solutions. Uh, the second thing, however, is the ugly. And that is the, uh, uh, sorry, that's the bad. And that is uh, trying to boil the ocean. You know, it's just you're trying to do too much. 
You got to saying, oh, you know, if I'll do this and I'll do it. So I'll fix the drug companies and the medical device and I'll do the insurances and we'll make a policy. <laughs> right. And anybody who knows the difficulties, not only to execute, but even to operationalize an IT solution, knows that you can't do uh, cloud and security and interoperability and, uh, you know, a, a multi-chain, multi-currency platform just like that. You'd need for that hundreds, if not close to a thousand people in a very uh, a big centralized solution. Yeah. So, so the second, so, so that's, that's kind of the, the bad part, that we try to boil the ocean. And the third is the ugly part, that there are baked assumptions, just certain things that we think in our head. As, oh, you know, these drug companies, they're awful. We got to do the... Maybe, I don't know, but that will define your solution. The way right. that you ask the question is already... So if you say, are drug companies good or bad, and you say already bad, that will, you know, flavor your solution. But if you try to understand, okay, what is it about drug companies that cause them to decide about this, you know, prefer this business model versus another. You know, don't assume that people that are above you are corrupt and stupid. They used to be as smart as you are. And don't think that the people that are younger than you are lazy and, and, and entitled. No, they are just as ambitious and just as yeah. creative as you are. So I think that if we start to respect each other and try to understand, that is the first step of what are the things we try to understand the problem you're trying to fix. And all my clients, when they come, the first thing is, what is the problem you're trying to fix? Yeah. And when they say that, okay, so what's the solution you propose? And you will be surprised to know how many either have a solution that doesn't solve the problem, or they have a solution that maybe solves the problem, not the problem that they thought of. So the first thing is know the system that you're trying to solve. Where are the pain points there? Mm -hmm. The second is understand who are the lovers and who are the haters. Who is going to support you and who is going to give you a hardship? And I, like I always say, when you come up with a good idea, an innovative idea, don't expect people to embrace it. People are going to throw pot shots at you. People are going to sue you. People are going to try to obstruct you. People are going to try to buy you off. So this is not an easy peasy. Oh my God, this is such a great idea, Alex. Why don't we do, how did we not think about it? Thank you so much for you enlightening. No, it doesn't work that yeah. way. And then also accept that when you get that solution and it's adopted, that it's not yours anymore. It's not yours. It'll be, if, if truly what you're looking is the betterment of the planet, it is not yours the minute, it, it, it actually, to some extent, it was never yours because it's never about you. And so people come up to me and say, oh, did you hear about these guidelines and this? So I don't walk around saying, oh yeah, I know because I thought about it 10 years ago. No, yeah. you say, that's a great idea. Thanks for explaining. You have to be, selfless as well as fearless not just a risk taker that but also to, to understand that we are just a part of a larger community and once you understand who are the lovers and the haters then you need to understand technical stuff you need to understand what does a decentralized economy look like in healthcare what does tokenization look like in healthcare? Should it be tokenized or not? And then uh, after that, through understanding value, you can come up with you know, interesting economic models mm -hmm. that empower patients. And I would say that for me, if there's one thing that really opened my eyes, 
like Alex, out of all the stuff that you, what is like the one thing that amazed you is that I'm starting to think about health like money. Okay, not health to monetize it, that's something else, but as health data like money, which that means, it means it's that it's more. mine, right? Mm -hmm. It's valuable, right? I usually keep my money in a wallet, in a safe place, and I want access to it everywhere, anywhere, all the time. Mm -hmm. And also, I want to inherit it, and I want yeah. maybe to donate it. And so it just opens. Huh. I want to donate my data to the betterment of... So it changes the way of privacy laws and what is ours and not ours. And I think that's the shift. Because what, that, what will that cause? When you have data, then you have insights. When you have insights, you have knowledge. When you have knowledge, you have wisdom. And it's the wisdom that creates the culture. And so it's all what, cre what the, the glue of all these stakeholders is data liquidity. And the reason that we're fighting between each other, we think we're, is the data illiquidity. Yeah. Sitting between the silos and not moving. And all we want is a data-rich environment where everybody has an opportunity to, to gain that wisdom from the data. And if you ask me, it always needs to be driven by the patient, not patient-centric. That's something different. That's doing all these, you know, kind of UX, UI, make it fun for pay. No, yeah. it's not a game for, it is patient driven. I own my data. I decide when I want to give the doctor my uh, 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 day, access to my data. Yeah. I decide what I want to give to uh, my family. I decide what I want to give to the insurance company. I, if I want to, I can opt in and give my data to a pharma company and have them pay directly me for that data. Yeah. So it opens a whole new world where people suddenly, instead of being passive, helpless, hopeless health service consumers, suddenly they're active, helpful, and hopeful health and wealth producers. And that's, in essence, what we have to transform people from consumers to producers. And I like what you said um in your talk right before we jumped on about the opposite of health. Mm. What is the opposite of health? And I was sitting there racking my brain and you said isolation. Never thought of that. And then your connection with connectedness, both in the human sense, but also in the IT sense mm -hmm. and how that really changes the game. Yes. Yes. So taking a step back from uh, health and blockchain, I'm curious uh, to hear where you're seeing really impactful innovations in health outside of the blockchain sphere? Well, uh, um, I think that, again, we're going back to um, cultural constructs. I think that what people think are innovative and disruptive and helpful is very different f in different countries. Uh, in the US, uh, we have this uh, fetish for bigger, better, using super superlatives. We want things that are new and right. newer. So by definition, if I can do uh, 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 everything using immersive technologies, that's better. Okay? I can use now MR, mixed reality, extended reality, and all this. It's cool. You know, it's a toy. And that's fine, you know, you could agree, say yes, you could say that's total nonsense, doesn't matter what you think, but there is a cultural draw for fancier devices, fancier drugs, more toys to play with, and also this, this 
yearn for immortality. There's a lot of work that's going into stem cell. There's a lot of work that's going into anti-aging. It is a thing that preoccupies the consciousness of the scientific community in the United States. But it's not the same, for example, in Europe. In Europe, they're not seeking necessarily in all countries to live until the age of 200. They're actually already living way more than Americans with a good quality of life. What they're looking at is equity and equality. What they're looking at is to providing people the best quality of life. They don't think that if you're the age of 95 and you take in a million dollar pill that will give you an extra three weeks, but for that you'll spend in the, in the uh, uh, hotel or in the hospital, right. they don't think of it as good. But if you could have going for comfort, quantity. exactly, yeah. and they were thinking of quality, you know, comfort care. How do you give people comfort? How do you have access to good food, to clean air, to water without lead, to no noise? You know, so so again, uh, um, what is considered good and value is very very culturally tied. I think, however, that what is unique in this time, and I'm paraphrasing Atul Gawande, who's now the CEO of ABC, right, the Amazon Berkshire Chase conglomerate, which it'll be interesting where he will take them and if he yeah. will adopt blockchain, I hope so, but uh, I'll, I'll, I'll just paraphrase what he says, and this is what makes these times unique. He says, nowadays is the first time in history where we are not halted or stunted by our ignorance but rather by our ineptitude. In other words, we know everything. The question now is, do we act on it or not? Right. Why do we make these choices? And this is, again, where culture comes in, where ethics come in, where morals and beliefs come in, what we think is praiseworthy, what we think is, is uh, important to pay attention to. It is generational. I can tell you that my 12-year-old understands totally sustainability in a way that I can't even perceive, where she is colorblind and genderblind and classblind, and she just understands the non-sustainability of all our predatory behaviors. So I think that, again, healthcare, like education, is a reflection of who we are and who we want to be vis-a-vis -vis other people. If in countries where we have a strong social contract, where we be believe that our success is related or interdependent with the success of others, decentralization will be easy. The network effect is easier to understand. In countries where there is not a belief or a strong belief of so, uh, social contract and where there's a thought that it's all about individualism and personal work and all that, then it's less intuitive to understand what decentralization is. But at the end of the day, it doesn't matter if you adopt distributive ledger technology because it's a toy or because you think that that is connected through a social contract. Yeah. It doesn't matter. You will still get the same impact through the network effect. And so that's why I'm super optimistic of what's going to happen. And today we say, oh, these are crypto assets and crypto wallets and crypto health. And in 10 years, it'll just be assets and wallets and health. And I'll just stop being a crypto Sherpa and I'll just be a Sherpa and have to find a new job. I love it. I love it. Thank you. Um, 
we're wrapping up here, so just uh, this is your time for any final words, any calls to action, pieces of advice. Well, I do again want to reiterate what you said uh, uh, about isolation and really kind of make it clear to the audience what this is about. That, that, that when you ask or when I ask you or when we, we, I ask anyone to that extent, what is the opposite of health? 99.999% of people say the opposite of health is disease. The opposite of health is illness. And that is why we have a disease management system. Okay, it's not a wrong answer, it's an answer, but that answer caused us that if that is, you know, the, the, the model of the 19th century, that, you know, if I have a disease, it's caused by a germ, and then I have to get an antibiotic, you know, it's very simple, it's cause and effect, and there's a treatment, and that's it. But we lose the holistic approach of the person. It's as if, okay, you're just Mr. Pneumonia, right. I just give you penicillin, but now we have, everybody's taking it, so we have multiple strains, and we have resistance, and it's a total mess. We look at healthcare just as a disease management system, and it's not help. It, it used to be, now thanks to, to, to medical advances, all these communicable diseases, which killed us, like the black plague, or the black, or, 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 polio or influenza they would wipe continents now it doesn't exist anymore right. we don't we don't we don't have smallpox anymore we don't uh, uh we're soon not going to have any more malaria through uh genetic engineering of mosquitoes and and sickle cells so so we are getting to the point that the health the illness burden in the world is not any anymore communicable disease it's non-communicable disease it's the diseases of excess too much sugar, too much alcohol, too much cigarettes, too much uh, uh, drugs, too much work, too much sex, too much everything. Too much screens. Too much screens, too much you name it, too much of anything. Yeah. That th These are the diseases that we're coping with right now. So in this changing landscape, okay, thinking of the opposite of health as illness is not helpful. And so what I argue is that the opposite of health is isolation. That through disease and illness, what happens is that your world starts to contract and becomes smaller and smaller and smaller. And one day you just wake up, even though you might not be alone, but you feel you're alone. Your partner doesn't understand you. Your employer doesn't understand you. Your friends don't want to see you anymore because you're boring as hell. You know, it's like yeah. suddenly your world, you're all alone. And you realize that this is not a good quality of life. This is not what you were set up for. This is not the life plan that your parents promised you when they said, be good, go to school, get a job, and things will be fine. No, they'll not be fine. And so you take a Xanax, you take an OxyContin, you drink alcohol, and you overdose. And this happens every seven minutes in the United States. There is a epidemic, I call it a syndemic, because it is a series of epidemics in middle America, what we call deaths of despair. White, uh, 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 middle-aged men like myself that are in front of a world that they don't know anymore, where they're no more the breadwinners, where their spouse is, where their children are, and they've lost their sense of meaning. They lost their sense of identity. They lost their sense of purpose. And that is really why it's all about. Why did I do a whole career in pain medicine? 
is because what does pain do to you? It takes away your dignity. I would sit in front of patients and they would look at me and they're all frazzled and not shaved and in pain and they can't sit two minutes in the chair. And they would look at me and say, Doc, don't be confused. I was three months ago just like you. But this pain took all my dignity away. So that's what the, the, the loss of dignity brings you to that isolation through a physical ailment with, with cognitive, emotional, and, and, and psychological implications. So if you buy this, just for a second, this story, then it's clearly you realize that the journey back to wellness is through connectivity, it's through connectedness. The way I explain it to my, my 12-year-old is that if you take the I out of illness and replace it with we, what do you get? Wellness. Wellness. It's all about, and that's why I always say I start as a military guy, because none of us is as good as all of us. We can't do this life on our own. Yeah. And so that is the power of distributed ledger technology. Yeah, okay, there's hash and it's immutable and blah, blah, blah. And yes, you know, you can, uh, 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 we're going to increase the block sizes and we're going to increase the transactional speed and we're going to use, I don't know what DAGs and whatnot. And that's, that's not the, the results, reason. That's the impact. Not, that's not the, the reason is suddenly you have a world. Suddenly there's some guys, I don't know where, gals that are in China, in Lithuania, in Argentina, and stuff, in the United States, in Israel, just working together, yeah. trying to solve stuff. There's no boss. There's no government that tells you what to do. We just do this together because that's what we want to do, because it's a win-win. Yeah, it's a win-win-win. And so I, I think that's what excites me. What excites me is that finally I see that uh, if we really recognize not only each uh, another or each but also the other people that you kind of have think that you have nothing with them suddenly all the isms go away i say that all these isms is when you have only one story to tell about that person but when you get to know that person there's multiple stories there's no ism anymore right we're all the same we all wear our pants or dresses the same way Put on our underwear one leg at a time. And so uh, uh, I don't want to digress too much. I want to stay on the blockchain and healthcare and, 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 and really emphasize that it is the connectedness that, that, that really makes it robust and, and, and truly disruptive as opposed to other innovative technologies that, yeah, they're good, but they're optimizers. They're not disruptors. Yeah. And I really appreciate uh, the passion that you bring and the work that you're doing connecting the different stakeholders in the system and also taking the time to connect here today. Thank so, you. Doctor, thank you very much. Thank you. Look forward to future conversations. To learn more and get inspired, I recommend reading The Checklist Manifesto by Atul Gawande, Think Wrong by Mike Byrne, and Everybody Matters, The Extraordinary Power of Caring for Your People Like Family by Bob Chapman. A big thanks to my sponsor, Jay Lately, for providing the music for Onward. Jay Lately is a hip-hop artist who's been pursuing his dream since the age of 16 while juggling jobs that improve the lives of youth in Oakland. If you like good music and want to support independent artists, please go check out soundcloud.com forward slash just lately. Make sure to subscribe to Onward via iTunes or Anchor FM. 
Wouldn't want you missing out on another inspiring conversation with the awesome social innovator. Until next time, onward and upward. <laughs>